So welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to continue our odyssey with implied terms of contract. So we finished up the last day by looking at the famous contrasting judgments of Lord Wilberforce and Lord Denning in Liverpool City Council versus Irwin. So as you'll recall, the dispute between the two of them had to do with the broadness or extensiveness of the doctrine of terms implied into contract by law. So we were talking about terms that are implied by fact or in fact, and the idea here is that courts will imply terms into contracts in order to give effect to the intention of the parties, and in doing so they will apply something called the officious bystander test. But there are also other contexts in which they might imply a broader set or richer set of terms into a contract. And Lord Justice Denning in Liverpool City Council claimed that this was a whole new doctrine, a new area of law, terms that are implied based on what is reasonable, given the legal nature of the relationship between the parties. And Lord Wilberforce disputed that, saying that it needs to be a restrictive and narrow concept or narrow doctrine that we do imply terms into contracts as a matter of legal necessity, but this isn't an excuse or justification for courts to imply terms into contracts willy-nilly based on what their own perceived or assumed interpretations of what is reasonable. It has to be very restrictive indeed. Now, I concluded the previous lecture by suggesting that I wasn't entirely convinced of Lord Wilberforce's claims that this is a narrow doctrine. I think it is, in fact, a smokescreen for judges to imply terms into contracts based on what they think is reasonable given some kind of policy aspiration. And I think I can give some examples of that by going through a series of cases in which courts have implied terms into contracts based on this doctrine of implied in law. And I'll go through some Irish and English cases here, mainly English cases again. I will do another session with you where I talk about some recent Irish cases on this area, but I, I won't cover that in the podcasts. Okay, so first case, it's actually an old case, uh, but it's kind of reinterpreted and modernized as an example of this implied in law doctrine. This is a case called Potter versus Carlisle and Cliftonville Golf Club. It's a Northern Irish decision. And the facts are pretty simple. The plaintiff was playing golf on the defendant golf course. He was struck in the eye by a golf ball. He was not a member of the club. He was rather a visitor who was paying a green fee. Nevertheless, it was held by the court that by paying the green fee and walking onto the first tee, he accepted the usual risks of the game on himself as between himself and the club, and so he couldn't claim for damages for being struck in the eye by a golf club. So it was an implied term of the contract associated with paying the green fee that he accepted the risk of getting struck by a golf ball. And the idea here is that this is somehow necessary given the nature of the contractual relationship between a golf club and a green fee paying visitor. Another case then, the case of Burke versus the Corporation of Dublin. It's a 1991 decision, so we're fast forwarding a bit in time here. And I'm going to be jumping back and forth in time quite a bit in this series of um, examples. So the case here is a landlord-tenant relationship. And this seems to be the kind of contractual relationship that has given rise to a lot of these judgments. So a lot of terms are implied into contracts as a matter of legal necessity in landlord-tenant relationships. Uh, this is also an area that's heavily governed by statute, which is a point that I'll come back to later on. 
So here you have the plaintiffs, Burke, who were leases of the defendant. And the problem here was that the heating system in the building that they were leasing was found to be faulty. And this caused damage to both the property and the health of the plaintiffs, Burke. And the court held in this case that there was an implied duty under the contract between the landlord and the leasee to ensure that the dwelling was fit for human habitation. Makes sense and kind of follows the Liverpool City Council versus Irwin decision. Another case, uh, the Royal Trust Company of Canada versus Kelly is a 1968 Irish decision. And I'm not going to go into the facts in this case, but this was a contract between an employer and an employee. And employer-employee contracts are, along with landlord-tenant contracts, another classic example of a type of contractual relationship where courts are willing to imply terms into them as a matter of law. And the key finding in this case, the key judgment in this case, is that it was held that in the absence of any express agreement to the contrary, that it's an implied term of every employment contract, that the contract can be terminated upon giving reasonable notice. Okay, so now I've given those three examples quickly, and I just want you to ask yourself the question, on what basis are the courts implying these terms into the contract? Is it because of some so-called legal necessity, or again, is it because it is desirable as a matter of policy to imply these kinds of terms into a contract? Is it desirable as a matter of policy to assume that a green fee paying member in a golf, sorry, a green fee paying visitor at a golf club takes upon, takes upon himself the risks of the game? Is it desirable to assume that a landlord has a duty to maintain a building that is fit for habitation? Is it desirable as a matter of, pol matter of policy to assume that employment contracts can be terminated given reasonable notice? I would say it probably is, and you can certainly construct arguments for saying that it is desirable. And to then suggest or fall back on the notion that it is somehow legally necessary seems to me to ring hollow. And I should say as well that many of the terms that are implied in those cases, particularly the landlord, tenant, and employer-employee cases, have now been formalized in statutory law. So what's happened is that common law courts have found that certain terms are implied into those kinds of contractual relationships um, as a matter of law, and then subsequently legislative authorities in different countries have decided to create comprehensive statutes that govern these types of contractual relationship that necessarily imply those terms into the contract. Now, if you're not convinced by those three examples that I just gave, let me just mention three English examples that I think further support this notion. So the first case is a case called Scali versus the Southern Health and Social Services Board. It's a 1992 English decision. And here you have the plaintiffs who are part of a pension scheme that is run by the defendants. And under the terms of this pension scheme, an employee had to accumulate 40 years of contributory service in order to be entitled for a full pension. Now, in the mid-1970s, so many years before this case was decided, a scheme was introduced whereby the employees could purchase additional years of service at favorable rates. And just as an aside here, this is actually a common enough arrangement in employer pension schemes. That, In essence, if you want to retire early, you can yourself take money out of your own salary to purchase additional years of service in order to facilitate early retirement. 
So the plaintiffs here sued on the grounds that they were not properly informed about this scheme, this ability to purchase additional years of service at favorable rates. And they based their argument on the claim that the defendants were under an implied contractual duty to inform them about the favorable rates for purchasing years of service. And the House of Lords, the English House of Lords, agreed. They held that the defendants were obliged to take reasonable steps to inform the employees of the existence of their right to purchase additional years of service. Now, although the judges in this case clinged to the language of necessity, that this was necessitated by law, one of the judges in the decision, Lord Justice Bridge, said that terms implied by law were based on wider considerations than apply in the case of terms implied by fact. So terms that are implied in order to give effect to the intentions of the parties. Now, subsequent decisions have shown that the wider considerations can be very wide indeed. So an example of this is the case of Malik versus Mahmoud uh, versus the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. So the plaintiffs here were employees of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. This bank went out of business due to a number of scandals. The plaintiffs were unable to secure employment elsewhere. Partly, they alleged on the grounds that their previous employment with the Bank of Credit and Commerce International damaged their reputation and no other financial institution would take them on. And they based this argument on an implied term of contract of employment. Sorry, I don't know if I actually explained that correctly. So they, they weren't able to secure employment and they then sued for damages due to the effect of their prior employment on their chances of securing subsequent employment. And so they based this argument on the fact that their employer had breached a term of their contract. And this alleged term of contract was implied, and it was that an employer shall not, without reasonable and proper cause, conduct itself in a manner that is calculated and likely to destroy or seriously damage the relationship of trust and confidence between an employer and an employee. And the argument was that the bank had done that because they had been involved in these scandals. And the key thing here was that the House of Lords in the UK agreed that there was indeed an implied duty to that effect that should be read into any contract of employment. And the interesting thing, at least from my perspective, is that the House of Lords based this decision on the grounds that there were changes in the socio-cultural nature of employment which mandated the inclusion of such a term. And to me, anyway, that sounds really just like an essentially policy-based analysis. That employment has changed and it is in some sense desirable to assume that employers have this duty not to damage the relationship of trust and confidence. And I should say as well, just in passing here, that this notion that there is an implied duty to maintain this relationship of trust and confidence between an employer and an employee is actually pretty important in practice. And if you're ever involved in an employment-related dispute, uh, this can crop up over over again. So sometimes, for example, employers defend themselves from suits for wrongful dismissal on the grounds that an employee has damaged the relationship of trust and confidence between themselves and the employer. Uh, another example here, just to kind of further hammer home this point that I'm trying to make, that what courts are doing are really implying terms into contracts based on what is desirable, is a case called Paragon Finance PLC versus Nash, which is a 2002 decision. And here we have the plaintiff who made two mortgage loans to the defendant, and both of those loans were subject to a variable interest rate. 
So in other words, the interest rate on the loan repayments varied as a function of the market interest rate. You can also get so-called fixed interest rate uh, loans or mortgages. The defendants were in arrears on these loans, and so the plaintiffs tried to claim possession of the property in question. The defendants countersued and counterargued that the plaintiffs were in breach of an implied term concerning the variation of interest rates. In, in particular, they claimed that the plaintiffs could not vary the interest rates in a dishonest way or for an improper purpose or in a capricious or arbitrary manner. And the Court of Appeal agreed with this. They said that an, a lender of money could not vary rates of interest in this manner. Now, again, you're claiming that this is based on some doctrine of legal necessity, but I would suggest that it's very difficult to suggest that there's anything other than pure kind of policy-based reasoning taking place here. That the court is essentially just saying that it isn't desirable to allow a lender of money to vary interest rates capriciously or arbitrarily or for an improper purpose. And so we're going to imply into the terms of the mortgage contract a duty to that effect to not change an interest rate arbitrarily or capriciously. To suggest that this is somehow necessary to the legal relationship seems nonsensical, particularly because, you know, hundreds of years ago or 150 years ago, it wouldn't have been thought that unnecessary to, or sorry, it wouldn't have been thought that necessary to do such things. So, like, I won't belabor the point. I'm, this is a, an argument that I'm trying to make as opposed to a specific claim about the nature of the law. Judges certainly still cling to the notion that when they're implying terms into contracts, they are not freely expressing their policy preferences. They suggest that they are restricted by other factors, but I'm just not convinced that that's true. All that said, I will come back to this point in other conversations that I have with you, again, not in these podcasts, where we look at Irish courts and maybe they're a little bit more reluctant than their English brethren to decide these kinds of cases on the basis of kind of policy preferences. In the meantime, however, let's uh, move on and talk about another set of rules that has to do with implying terms into contracts. And this has to do with implying terms into contracts on the basis of customer practice. Now, in a sense, we came across this idea already when we're talking about the incorporation of terms into contracts, where we said that, you know, it might be a customer practice in a certain industry that a term applies and as a result parties try to get those terms incorporated into a contract. I just want to revisit that idea here because there is in fact a slightly broader rule here concerning the implication of terms into a contract. And I can state that rule simply enough as the follow as follows that if a party can prove on the balance of probabilities that a particular custom or practices or sorry or, or practice exists in a given trade or locality and that both parties to the contract relied upon that custom or practice, and that nothing in the express wording of the contract contradicts that custom or practice, then that custom or practice may be implied into the contract. So there are several ex examples of this in practice. I'll just mention a few Irish cases. Uh, O'Reilly versus the Irish Press, which is a 1937 Irish decision. Here you have the plaintiff, who is a sub-editor for a newspaper that's owned by the defendants, he claimed damages for wrongful dismissal on the grounds that there was a custom in the newspaper industry that would entitle an employee to six months' notice prior to the termination of a contract. 
But the court rejected this on the grounds that there was a lack of evidence for the existence of such a custom. And in reaching this conclusion, the president of the Irish High Court, uh, Maguire, gave guidance on what would be needed to prove the existence of a custom. He said that before custom such as is contended for here can be held to be established, it must be proved by person whose position in the world of journalism entitles them to speak with certainty and knowledge of its existence, and I have to be satisfied that it is so notorious and well-known and acquiesced in that in the absence of agreement in writing, it is taken to be one of the terms of the contract between the parties. So that phrasing there is the key bit, that the custom in question has to be notorious and well-known. So that might seem like a tough enough standard, but it has been successfully proven in a number of cases. So there's a case called Carroll versus Dublin Bus, which is a 2006 Irish High Court decision where a plaintiff worked for Dublin Bus and he returned to work after being ill. And he managed to establish that it was, in fact, a custom within Dublin Bus, specifically that employer, by the way, for drivers that returned to work to be given a light or rehabilitation bus route. Similarly, an older case, O'Connell versus the Gaelic Echo, the plaintiff in that case managed to recover extra pay after being terminated on the grounds that it was custom in Dublin journalism, at least, for journalists to be given one month notice. So both of those cases show as well that this notion of implying terms into a contract by custom or practice, you can be referring to very local, very small-scale customs. So customs within a particular employer or within a particular city or locality within a city. So uh, even though this is maybe rarely argued, it is a useful idea. But let's move on then to another category of terms that are implied into contracts. And this is probably more important in practice. It's uh, terms that are implied into contract by statutory law. So there really is no single rule here. Um, There are lots of statutes that govern different kinds of contractual relationships. And many of those statutes, their function is to set down default rules that apply to particular kinds of contracts. Sometimes those statutes allow parties to voluntarily exempt themselves from those default rules. And sometimes they don't. And look, I've kind of mentioned examples of these already as I've gone along, but the two biggies are probably employment contracts and landlord-tenant contracts. Those two types of contractual relationships are heavily governed by statute. And so you might be familiar with this already if you're in a leasehold agreement. There's something called the Residential Tenancies Act 2004 and various other Tenancies Acts that... uh, necessitate certain terms being included in leasehold agreements. And there are a variety of employment statutes as well that require certain terms be implied into uh, employment contracts. Now, we won't cover those examples. You can actually do courses on both areas of law later in your legal education in this university. You can do a course on labor law, which deals with lots of the rules in relation to employment contracts. And you can also do a course on land law, and that deals with a lot of the principles associated with uh, landlord-tenant contracts, or at least some of them. The area of statute, of statutory terms that we will deal with, though, are those that apply to consumer contracts, and the most important statute here, or rather set of statutes, 
are the various sale of goods acts uh, from 1893 up until 1980. So some of you might be familiar with the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act of 1980. You might have come across this in business courses. It's commonly covered at a second level business uh, organization course or something along those lines. Uh, interestingly enough, if we want to be pernickety and technical, the most relevant provisions of the 1980 Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act that concern implied terms of contract anyway are actually amendments to the 1893 Act. So technically speaking, it's the 1893 Act that remains in force, but the 1893 Act has been amended by the 1980 Act. So in what follows, I'm going to be talking about different sections of the 1893 Act, but all of these sections were inserted into the 1893 Act by the 1980 Act. Uh, that's a very tedious way of explaining it, but it's just an unfortunate feature of the way in which legislation works. Now, this is explained in more detail in the notes that accompany this lecture. I'm not going to mention it again. I'm just going to refer to the sections of the 1893 Act, but just be advised that they're all amended and added back into that Act by the 1980 Act. So the key provisions here are sections 12 through 15 of the 1893 Act. And I'll comment uh, on a couple of these briefly, and then I'll discuss section 14 in some detail. So section 12, I'm not going to read out the full section. That sets down an implied condition for any contract for the sale of goods that the person selling the goods actually has the legal right to sell those goods. Makes sense, but... It's important to have it stipulated in case somebody sells goods that they don't, in fact, have the legal right to sell. Then there is Section 13 of the 1893 Act, and this covers the sale of goods by description. And there's an implied condition that if you ever sell goods by description, the sale, the, sorry, the goods that are sold should correspond with the description. Likewise, if you ever sell sell goods by samples, you allow somebody to sample goods in advance, then the goods sold must match the sample. And if goods are sold both by sample and by description, then they have to correspond with both. And it's important to note here the statutory language that this is an implied condition of contract. It's not an implied warranty of contract. Remember, the distinction that we drew earlier in this sequence of lectures between a condition of contract and a warranty of contract. Condition is something that is essential to the contract and entitles you to damages and the right to terminate a contract. Then there is section 14 of the 1893 Act, which is probably the most important provision in practice. And it's a complicated provision, but the gist of it is that any sale of goods, there is an implied condition that the goods are of merchantable quality. Or, crucially as well, that they are fit for any particular purpose for which they might be sold. There are a couple of exceptions to this. If the seller of the goods draws the buyer's attention to certain defects and they're aware of them before they purchase the goods, then they have to accept the, those defects. But apart from those exceptional circumstances, there is this implied condition that goods are merchantable, of merchantable quality, and also that they are fit for purpose. Then there's section 15 of the Act, which is the specific rule about sale by sample. 
So I mentioned earlier sale by description and sale by sample at plus description. Section 15 is the rule that specifically relates to sale by sample. And again, the implied condition is that wherever you sell goods by sample, they have to correspond to the sample. And finally then, another key provision here is section 39 of the 1980 Act, not the 1893 Act. And this is the bit that has to do really with the supply of services as opposed to the sale of goods. And section 39 of the 1980 Act stipulates that in every contract for the supply of a service, the supplier is assumed to have the necessary skill to render the service and that they will supply the service with due skill, care and diligence and that wherever they use materials to supply the service, that those materials are fit for purpose and of merchantable quality. Okay, so let me just talk about a couple of those provisions in a bit more detail, starting with section 14 of the 1893 Act, this notion that there's an implied condition in any sale of goods contract that the goods in question are of merchantable quality and fit for purpose. What does that actually mean in practice? So look, there's a whole bunch of cases on this. A lot of them actually involve the sale of cars, and what does it mean for a car to be of merchantable quality? So there's a case called Leaves versus Wadham Stringer. It's an English case from the 1980s. Here you have a vehicle that's supplied which has a leaking boot, a defective bonnet light, a loose door, some rust, and a defective fan belt. And the court was asked whether this car was fit for purpose. Now it was held that it was fit for purpose because it was still capable of being driven despite these aesthetic defects. And being driven is the primary purpose of having a vehicle. Now, I suspect that this decision wouldn't be followed nowadays, given that we have more restrictive rules in relation to what makes a car roadworthy, you know, the application of the national vehicle testing or car testing system. If you had a defective bonnet light, you probably wouldn't pass your NCT test, so the car wouldn't be fit for purpose. But at least in this older decision of Lees versus Wadham, it suggests a kind of restrictive interpretation of that provision under the Sale of Goods Acts about what it means to be fit for purpose. And I should say here, I'm talking about English cases and Irish cases, and the reason for that is that the English and Irish legislation in this area is, is basically the, the same with one slight modification, which is that the English courts dropped, or the English legislature dropped the notion of merchantable quality in the mid-90s, and they changed it to satisfactory quality, but it kind of applied and interpreted to mean essentially the same thing. So Lees v. Wadham is one example of how courts approach this notion of fit for purpose. There's another case called Rogers v. Parrish, a 1987 decision. Here you have the plaintiff Rogers who's purchasing a so-called prestige model Range Rover. The car in question had a misfiring engine. There was excessive noise coming from the gearbox and had substantial defects to its bodywork. Nevertheless, the car was still capable of being driven and the defects in question could be repaired. Nevertheless, despite all of this, the English Court of Appeal held that the car was not of merchantable quality. And the rationale here, and the reason why the conclusion was different from Leaves v. Wadham, was that when you're, they held that when you're determining whether a good is of merchantable quality, you have to take into consideration the expectations of the typical purchaser of that type of good. And the plaintiff here was purchasing a prestige model car and they were paying well above the average price for a family car. So it was reasonable in those circumstances for him to expect that the car would not have the defects that it did in fact have. 
So this suggests that there's some relativity to the notion of merchant equality. It's relative to the type of good and the expectations that a reasonable consumer might have. Another decision on this is a Northern Irish decision, Lutton versus Savile Tractors Limited. Here you have the plaintiff purchasing a car from the defendants. There were defects to this car. It was a second-hand Ford Escort model, but the defects were minor, and but they had some effect on the performance of the car. And Justice Carswell, in this case, said that at the end of the decay, uh, sorry, at the end of the day, a decision as whether a car is of merchantable quality is a matter of fact and degree, and it is essential to take account of the factors specified in the statutory definition. And he found that the car in question was not of merchantable quality, given the expectations of the purchaser in those circumstances. Another case, then, is a slightly different set of facts. Uh, it's an English case called Bramhill versus Edwards. It's a 2004 decision. Now, it still involves the purchase of a car. But here you have a car that is imported into the UK. And after doing so, the buyer who purchased the car was told that by importing the car, he would be liable to prosecution. And this would render the car in question uninsurable. So he consequently tried to renege on the deal, arguing that the car was no longer of merchantable quality. Now, actually, at this point in time, the English law had changed to satisfactory quality. So his argument was that it wasn't of satisfactory quality, but we can just say merchantable quality. And so his reasoning here is that because the car was illegal in some sense and wasn't insurable, it wasn't of satisfactory quality. Now, the court's verdict here was a little bit odd or difficult to interpret in, in one sense in that they found that, as a matter of fact, he had not done anything illegal in importing the car, and so the car in question was insurable. But they did accept that, in principle, if the car hadn't been insurable, that would have rendered it unmerchantable or unsatisfactory. Now, nevertheless, the court's interpretation of what merchantable quality means can produce some odd results. And one of the famous examples of an odd result is the case of Harlingdon and Leinster versus Hull Fine Art Limited. It's an English case. Here you have the plaintiffs who purchase a painting from the defendants. And now, according to the description, the painting was by a famous German impressionist artist called Gabriel Munter. The plaintiffs uh, sent their own experts to look at the painting in advance of the sale. The experts told them that the painting was in fact by Munter and would have been worth around £6,000. It turned out subsequently that the painting was a forgery worth about fifty to £100, so significantly less money. And so the plaintiffs then tried to back out of the deal, and they made a number of arguments. Uh, one was that the painting did not match the description, because, again, it was described in the auction book that it was by this Impressionist painter, and then also that it was not of merchantable quality. Now here the court held that this was not a sale by description, because the plaintiffs had managed to send their own experts to verify or confirm whether it was, in fact, by Gabriel Munter. It's also not a misrepresentation for the same reason. That might not make any sense to you right now, but that's something to bear in mind when you look at the doctrine of misrepresentation later in the year. And the court also decided that the painting was of merchantable quality here, even though it was not by the claimed artist, because the painting could still be enjoyed on a purely aesthetic level. 
Now, I say this is an odd conclusion because I think a lot of people will find that unusual insofar as the value of artwork oftentimes is almost entirely determined by its origin, by the artist, as opposed to its aesthetic merits. Nevertheless, the court had a different view in this particular case. I wonder, however, would they have the same view if it turned out that an art gallery was you know, selling off a, a painting claiming it was by Leonardo da Vinci and it turned out that it was just a forgery? Uh, I think maybe they would have a different view. Another case then is worth mentioning on the concept of merchantable quality is the case of James Elliott Construction versus Irish Asphalt, which we've mentioned several times already in, in these lectures and is worth looking at because it deals with this concept of merchantable quality as well. So as you recall, that was a case that had to do with uh, the hardcore foundation for a building and containing this iron element pyrite that expands and causes cracking. And one of the key findings in that case by the High Court was that this product, this hardcore product, was clearly not of merchantable quality because it was not fit for one of the purposes which aggregate is routinely purchased for, to provide the foundations for flooring and walls and buildings. Now, an interesting feature of the Sale of Goods Act of 1893, Section 14, as amended, is that it also talks about goods being fit for the purchase, sorry, fit for purposes that are specified by the purchaser. So what if you're told that a good is being bought for a particular purpose and it turns out not to be fit for that purpose? Well, courts have ruled that in those circumstances, a seller is on notice as to the intended purpose and they are required by law to ensure that it is fit for that specific purpose. Otherwise, it's a breach of a condition of the contract. And now look, there are a range of cases that establish this point. There's the case of Wallace v. Russell of 1902, an Irish case where the plaintiff's granddaughter purchases two crabs on behalf of the plaintiff. And at the point of sale, she specifically asks the defendant fishmonger for crabs that would be nice and fresh for eating, for tea. The defendant says that he has no fresh crabs, so he sells her two boiled crabs. Herself and her grandfather got food poisoning. And the defendant uh, was sued successfully for selling goods that were not fit for purpose because he had been put on notice as to the fact that they were going to eat them by what she had said when she purchased them. Now, it's very important to notice that the provisions of the 1893 Act apply to people who are selling goods in the course of a business. So the idea here is that the rules apply to consumer contracts, where you have a commercial enterprise that is selling to an ordinary consumer. And there is a question that arises then as to what does it actually mean to be a commercial enterprise for the purpose of the 1893 Act? And it's pretty clear that the courts have a generous interpretation of what that means. And one illustration of this is the English case of Stevenson v. Rogers, which is a 1999 decision, where you have the defendant who's a fisherman who sells his boat to the plaintiff, uh, the plaintiff brings a case against him on the grounds that the boat is not of merchantable quality, but the defendant tries to counter-argue that he's not selling the boat in the course of a business because he's not in the business of selling boats, he's a fisherman. But the court here held that he was selling in the course of a business, and it was held that you do sell in the course of a business if you sell that good regularly or if the good in question is somehow integral to the business. Furthermore, they stated that only a purely private sale of goods outside the confines of any business carried on by the seller would fall outside the scope of the statutory rule. So look, if you sell your car secondhand 
online or something like that or to your friend, you're probably not selling in the course of a business. But in many other circumstances where you think you mightn't be selling in the course of a business, you probably are if the good that you're selling is somehow peripheral or integral to the business that you undertake ordinarily. And the point here is that courts are trying to make it difficult to escape the statutory rule. Okay, I know we've gone on for quite some time in this lecture, but I do want to finish up by talking about a couple of other things, and this will finish the topic of implied terms. So if you'll forgive me, we'll just persist for a few more minutes with this. So look, one of the things I wanted to mention is that all these provisions under the Sale of Goods Acts, they apply reasonably strictly, but there are some cases in which you can override implied terms implied by statute through explicit agreement, and that's allowed for, particularly in relation to supply of services rules and also contract rules and also business-to-business uh, -business dealings. And we'll come back and deal with that later in the semester when we talk about unfair terms in contract law. And the other thing I wanted to discuss just very briefly is the notion that there are certain terms that are implied into contracts as a matter of constitutional law. So this might seem odd to you at first, but it shouldn't be, because if terms can be implied into contracts as a matter of statutory law, and if the Constitution is the primordial and most important source of law in Ireland, it makes sense that if something is necessitated by a matter of constitutional law, it should also be implied into a contract. So look, the basic gist of the point to make here is that contracts must comply with constitutional rights. And if somehow a contract purports to override or undermine somebody's constitutional right, it cannot do so. And the explicit wording of the contract may be amended and terms implied into it that are consistent with somebody's constitutional rights. And there are several examples of this in practice. I'll just mention two of them. First, there's a case of Meskel versus CIE. It's a 1973 decision. So either you do know or you will become aware of the fact that Articles 40.61 and 2 of the Irish Constitution confer rights upon citizens to form associations and trade unions. Meskel was employed as a bus conductor by CIE. He was offered a new contract of employment, but that contract would oblige him to become a member of a specific trade union, and a failure to become a member of that trade union would result in termination. And he argued that this was a breach of his constitutional rights because the right to join an association or a trade union also implies a right not to join. And the contract was forcing him to join a trade union. And the court agreed with him. The court agreed that it would be an abuse of the common law right to terminate a contract because it is an infringement of the constitution, which is superior to common law. And the final example then that I want to mention on terms implied by constitutional law is a case called Delwave Investments versus NAMA. It's a 2011 Irish decision, very important recent Irish constitutional law decision, which I guess, strictly speaking, doesn't have to do with contract law, although, I mean, you could argue that it does have to do with contract law, but that doesn't really matter because the principle that implies here would apply to contractual relationships anyway. So the facts of the case here is that um, Delway Investments is a company owned by a guy called Paddy McKillen. And Paddy McKillen was one of these developers who was notorious during the Celtic Tiger era in Ireland, involved in a number of large property investments and deals. 
And his uh, loans uh, with Bank of Ireland were acquired by this statutory authority called NAMA, the National Asset Management Agency, which was set up by the Irish government as a way of resolving bad debts in the construction industry, development industry in Ireland post-2008. Some of the complexities of this are explained a little bit more in the notes, but the important point in this case is that Paddy McKillen wasn't very happy about the fact that his loans were acquired by NAMA, and he claimed that his loans were acquired in a way that breached a constitutional right to fair procedures, because he wasn't given any opportunity to voice his opposition to the way in which his loans were acquired. And the Irish Supreme Court agreed with him and said that there is, in fact, an implied right to fair procedures in any kind of administrative or institutional setting. And that would also apply to contractual relationships. So there is an implied term, let's say, within any employment contract of a right to fair procedures. So that's another example of a term that might be implied into a contract as a matter of constitutional necessity. And look, that's where we will fortunately leave it for this topic of implied terms in contract law. Just to very quickly summarize, we've encountered four different examples of terms being implied into a contract. We've had the terms that are implied into a contract by common law courts following the implied in fact and implied in law rules. We've got terms that are implied into contracts due to customs and practices in certain industries. We have terms that are implied into contracts by statutory law, focusing in particular on consumer contracts and the sale of goods acts. And then finally, terms that are implied into contracts as a matter of constitutional law. And the basic rule there is that a contract cannot undermine somebody's constitutional rights. Okay, that's it.